0: Western imperialists have a particular hubris about their conquests. We're justly proud of our civil institutions and our technological innovations and and our advanced way of life. And we tend to assume that everybody would like to live like us if they only had the opportunity. So when we overthrow a harsh and bloody-handed dictator We assume that we will be welcomed as liberators, if that sounds familiar to you. We're perpetually surprised when an insurgency blows up in our face. Case study, Rhodesia, 1896. Just ask Frederick Courtney Salou. We Europeans make the mistake of thinking that when we free a tribe of savages from what we consider a most oppressive and tyrannical form of government, substituting in its place an orderly rule under which every man's life and property is protected and which doctors are not recognized, we ought to earn their gratitude. But the fact is, we invariably fail to do so, as the present insurrection, as well as all the many rebellions by the natives of the Cape Colony against the rule of the imperial government has shown. Now, Frederick Courtney Salu had played an important role in cutting the road into Mishona land, which was the first establishment of a colonial presence in what became Rhodesia back in 1890. He had participated to a limited degree in the 1893 war, in which Cecil Rhodes' British South Africa Company succeeded in taking Matabili land. From King Lobengula, and then he'd returned to England, where he married a nineteen-year-old vicar's daughter named Gladys Maddie. And uh, Gladys was was half Fred's age at this time, but uh, certainly up for adventure. So when uh, when Frederick Courtney Salus Friend Maurice Haney offered him a position managing his estate called Ex- Essex Vale in Rhodesia uh, the young couple decided that they would would do it and Fred returned to Rhodesia things were looking pretty tranquil in this new colony which as we mentioned in the last episode was operated by a chartered company. It wasn't a British colony. It was it was operated by the British South Africa Company, which was under the auspices of, of Cecil Rhodes and a group of shareholders. But uh, at any rate, things seemed calm. The Ndebele, then generally referred to as Matabele, seemed to have accepted that, uh, that they'd been conquered after the War of 1893, at least to the appearances of um, to the European settlers there, and uh, that war had, had been quick and, and relatively easy. There was some hard campaigning and some losses, but uh, generally speaking, the uh, British South Africa Company had rolled over the Matabele um, in a, a perfect illustration of uh, Hilary Bloch's sardonic couplet, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not. The Matabili, though, had their grievances, of course, and, uh, and Salu recognized those grievances as rational and legitimate. The Matabili resented the way the chartered company had confiscated cattle in the wake of the 1893 war. They considered it all the property of Lobangula, the king who had been forced into exile and who had died. Um, And and they treated the cattle as spoils of war rather than the property of the Matabele people. And there was great resentment for the cattle confiscations that had occurred. Um, They didn't like the way a mandatory labor levy was being enforced. And uh, the whole region was under threat of a massive outbreak of a cattle plague called Rinderpest, which... uh, ultimately would, would be devastating to the whole of, of southern Africa. Uh, the 1890s outbreak of, of Rinderpest killed something between 80 and 90 percent of the livestock in the region. And uh, it was just starting to be felt in Matabili land. And uh, from the perspective of the, of the Matabili, since it had come at the same time, basically, as the white man, they, uh, they believed that the white man was responsible for the plague. And, uh, and Fred was seeing a lot of this because he had uh, um, one of his, his roles in Rhodesia at the time was acting as a cattle inspector. So he was seeing the early effects of this Rinderpest, uh, Rinderpest outbreak, and uh, that also contributed to considerable tensions. But the Indabele's biggest grievance was that they did not, in fact, accept being ruled by a foreign occupier. The fact that they were recent foreign occupiers of this land did not lessen their dissatisfaction under, under white man's rule. And, and again, Salu got this probably better than, than the run of white settlers in Rhodesia. But even with a a greater-than-usual sense of awareness and sensitivity to Native concerns, Salu didn't expect an insurrection any more than anybody else did. And truly, nobody did. None of the the white settlers, which numbered about 4,000 at this point in 1896, none of them really expected what was to occur. But in fact, an insurgency was already in the works, and it was only a matter of time and opportunity before it went off. And that opportunity was provided by Rhodesia's administrator uh, and Cecil Rhodes' longtime right-hand man, Dr. Leander Starr Jameson. In late 1895, December of 1895, Jameson led a large-scale raid into the Transvaal, with the connivance of of Rhodes and some elements of the the British Foreign Service, actually, Um, they were hoping to support a coup that was supposedly in the works to overthrow the Boer government and bring this suddenly very mineral-rich province under the British flag. But it quickly became clear that there wasn't going to be a coup or an uprising in, in Johannesburg as they had expected. But uh, Jameson, who was a very bold character by nature, wrote in anyway. He was hoping to force the wheel of, of history to turn. And his force was comprised of virtually the entirety of the British South Africa Company's paramilitary white police force which is important in our story because when the raid collapsed and Jameson was forced to surrender to Boer commandos, Rhodesia was basically stripped of its security force. And the old Matabele military hierarchy, which was mostly of Zulu descent, saw their chance and, and they managed to plan a, a large-scale countrywide insurgency without their overlords picking up The signs of it. And this was a a very remarkable achievement. And to this day, uh, historians still kind of puzzle over how it was managed and, and the actual mechanics of it. Um, some of it probably had to do with, um, with a religious movement, which is very often the case in, in these kinds of, of insurgencies. We've seen that from Pontiac's uprising in, uh, in the Great Lakes region in North America in the 1760s to Tecumseh's efforts in the 18-teens to the ghost dance in uh, the American West in in the late 1880s and early 1890s. But uh, it's really never been determined how they managed to plan this rebellion so successfully. It kicked off in March of 1896 and um, and here's where things broke, actually broke down a little bit for the, the Matabili. It was supposed to go off in a coordinated strike, and they would take the town of Bulawayo and slaughter the inhabitants of the outlying farms and mining operations and drive whoever was left out of the country. They, the uh, Matabili purposely left the road to the south open so that um the white settlers could flee the country and they were hoping to to just dump them all out of their former lands uh, that would prove later to have been a uh, a strategic error but uh that's kind of outside the scope of our story for this episode and and we'll we'll address that a little bit uh a little bit down the trail but at any rate um this insurgency kicked off in bloody fashion in March of 1896. Um, the coordination was spoiled as things these things often are by some overeager young men who started killing early and that tipped off the settlers, including Salu that something really serious was afoot here. I'm going to uh, read a bit from Norman. Etherington's uh, excellent biography of Frederick Courtney Salou. Um This passage is is interesting because uh, you know, for several reasons, obviously, but uh, I kind of get a kick out of the uh, the degree to which Salu was a, a classic Victorian husband. Uh, he didn't want to to bother the little lady with any concerns that maybe they would be slaughtered in their house. After talking to the veteran missionary, Charles Helm, Slew understood the full extent of Matabeli grievances, but still did not imagine that a widespread challenge to company rule was contemplated. By mid-March, he was fully occupied in cattle inspection. Gladys looked on him as her strong but silent protector. She understood that his work meant a great deal of riding about the country, but he was always very careful not to leave me alone at night. Well, on these trips, he heard many rumors about Native unrest, but never mentioned it to me. On Monday, 23rd of March, Fred heard from H.M. Jackson that a number of black police had been assaulted by a gang of angry matabele. He did not imagine this to be a prelude to a general rising, but felt apprehensive about having left Gladys alone at home that night. Next day, he was relieved to find nothing amiss, amiss at the house. Gladys had, however, received an odd deputation that morning. Several men came and asked if they could buy or borrow some axes and sharpen them on our grindstone. They wanted them to strengthen their cattle kraals. We kept large stores of many things for the natives, beads, calico, etc. Little thinking, I sold them and noticed that they would sit around watching me and talk and tell me I was their white queen, etc., but always wanted to know, when was the boss coming back? Was he coming back that night? He turned up earlier than expected, and as he had heard things were getting more unsettled and even two or three white people had been murdered, I told him what I had done selling axes, but he never told me anything as he was most anxious not to make me nervous, but he told the two men to have their rifles ready and be on the lookout. Well, we had a quiet night, and I never even noticed that my husband had a loaded rifle by his bed. Well, the seriousness of matters came clear. Almost immediately. Next morning, Salu woke and found that armed men had seized cattle from the pens on the estate. Gladys was nonplussed when the watchman ran up to their house shouting, Bring the horses, bring the horses, make haste! I could not understand it. Then my husband told me all that he had heard and said, Eat what you can, pack a few clothes, collect all the money, and we must ride hard into Bulawayo. So he locked up the house and with our two men started off for town. Luckily, we had four horses at the time. Our two most faithful servants took my little dog and bag of clothes and walked and ran into Bulawile. I was just about dead beat when I did arrive at my kind friend's house where I stayed. Many had already been murdered. My husband went off to collect some men and horses to return and save our house, which was eventually looted and burnt, and I was left with only a change of clothes." The situation was very bad for the white Rhodesians. At this point, sort of incomprehensibly, a, a lot of them went about unarmed. And uh, that's not the picture that we have of, of intrepid pioneers, but it was nevertheless the case. And a, a large number, several hundred, were murdered in the initial phases of the uprising, either on their farms or in their mines, and some of them without uh, much of a chance to put up any kind of a fight. And this also included women and children. The Matabili had learned some significant lessons from having been decimated, charging into Maxim guns in the 1893 war, and though they would lay siege, kind of a loose siege, to Rhodesia's capital there at Bulawayo they did not engage in open warfare they only attempted to engage when they were on broken ground and instead of the assegai, the short stabbing spear that was their traditional primary weapon now their primary weapon was the Martini Henry single-shot rifle and uh and they had squirreled away large numbers of these rifles over a period of years and a fairly heavy stock of ammunition. And so when they engaged the settlers in any kind of armed firefight, they, it, was, uh, it was from a distance and, uh, and with rifles rather than spears. Salu was a broad-minded man, and he had enjoyed good relations with the workers on the Essex Essex Vale estate, and he was initially inclined to have some sympathy or, or at least some leniency towards the the Matabele rebels. But the murder of white women and children was a shocking thing, all the way to the core of the Victorian psyche and um you know there's all kinds of of reasons for that um it kind of evoked the same kind of savage response that that we saw in slave rebellions in the American South in the 19th century and the Indian mutiny in 1857 when the the response of the british was really brutal. Um, in his book, Sunshine and Storm in Rhodesia, which was published at the tail end of the rebellion, Salou wrote, the accounts which I had heard of the cruel and treacherous murders that had been perpetrated on defenseless women and children, besides at once destroying whatever sympathy I may have first felt for the rebels, had not only filled me with indignation, but it had excited a desire for vengeance, which could only be satisfied by a personal an active participation in the killing of the murderers. And so Salu went to war for the first time in a real serious way. He'd participated in the 1893 fighting, but um, kind of tangentially, and, and this was was a much more serious conflict for him. And he employed the skills that he'd developed as a hunter and, and used them, for scouting and on aggressive patrols, first to bring in surviving settlers from the outlying farms and mines, and then to try to take the fight to the Matabili. Um, and uh, he was uh, he had a uh, a leadership role in a citizen ranger force called the Bulawayo Field Force, um, which was a scratch outfit that was was put together right at the beginning of the rebellion. And uh, he had some some ser- seriously close calls. I want to pause here for just a moment um, to make a little reminder that, uh, that I'd thrown this out in the uh, introduction to this Africa series, that uh, the language used by contemporary chroniclers, including Salu, uh is language that, that now would be considered offensive. And uh, I'm just going to operate on the premise that the listeners to this podcast and the readers of the Frontier Partisans blog are adults and capable of understanding context and that they don't need to be pro- protected from language and that uh, all of you understand that the use of what is now an offensive term in its historical context does not imply any kind of endorsement of racist or white supremacist views. Um, it's unfortunate that we even have to add such provisos, but uh, these days these days we do. And uh, Salu consistently refers to the matabili as kafirs, um, which is an Arabic term Uh, derived from an Arabic term at any rate, uh, which meant infidel. And in Salu's day, it was a pretty common more or less neutral term for blacks in southern Africa. Since the apartheid era, it has become considered a vicious insult, and again, it's not intended in that way in the context of this podcast, and it wasn't in fact intended that way in the context of Salu's writing. So at any rate, uh, back to our story, Salu faced some, some serious close calls with his aggressive patrolling against these Matabili insurgents. In one case, um, he was out on foot leading his horse on a patrol, which consisted of both white settler militiamen and what was known as Cape boys or colonial boys um, which were uh, mostly servants or employees of settlers, um, ranch hands or, or mining employees of uh, of the Rhodesian settlers who were from different native, peoples in the Cape Colony to the south, um, so including some Zulu. Um, and they were unaffiliated with the Matabili and not in sympathy with the rebellion. They stayed loyal to the Rhodesian settlers throughout the conflict and actually uh, served as as very effective fighting men. So here's Salu out in front and... Uh, and firing and his, uh, his horse is grazed in bolts and there's Matabili rushing toward him and uh, and he's in a, in a sticky wicket. Now remember that Salu was noted in his youth as a runner and spent a lot of his, his younger days running hard after elephant. So he took to his heels and sprinted away. As I ran, carrying my rifle at the trail, I felt in my bandolier with my left hand to see how many cartridges were still at my disposal, and found that I had fired away all but two of the thirty I had come out with, one being left in the belt and the other in my rifle. Glancing round, I saw that the foremost Kaffirs were gaining on me fast, though had this incident occurred in 1876 instead of 1896, with a start I had got, I would have run away from any of them. Okay, Fred, if you say so. A Captain Windley, who was uh, leading the Colonial Boys, boosted Salu onto the back of his horse to make a getaway. But that horse started bucking and Salou bailed off. He lost his hat but kept his rifle and decided that he'd best just leave the hat behind for a warrior's souvenir and again, on foot, he bolted for his patrol and finally made it while the colonial boys gave him cover fire and poured a volley into his pursuers and held them off. I joined John Grootboom's party, and old John at once gave me his horse, which, I was, as I was very much exhausted and out of breath, I was very glad to get. Indeed, I was so tired by the hardest run I had ever had since my old elephant hunting days that it was quite an effort to mount the whole Bulawayo Field Force party on this patrol uh, then withdrew to a prepared position, which they had defended with a Maxim gun, and the pursuing Matabili broke off the pursuit because they knew better than to challenge the Maxim gun at this point. So, in classic British Victorian fashion, Salou referred to this as a disagreeable experience uh, He had other Disagreeable experiences That's a, a good illustration um, His war really did Consist mostly of, of Patrolling and and, uh, and Some fairly aggressive Burning of Matabili Huts and, and grain fields That kind of, of Dirty sort of Counterinsurgency warfare that uh, is very common in frontier experience. And, uh, you know, he went at it hard, um, still motivated by a great deal of anger at uh, what he perceived of as, as the dastardly murder of white women and children. But uh, his war would come to an end before the actual war did. Um, the British empire actually deployed troops to quell the rebellion it was out of the capacity of the british south africa company to uh to effectively put this rebellion down so the british empire had to step up and and do it which uh was another common phenomenon in 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 british history it was one of the reasons that a lot of of British folks, uh, didn't like these chartered companies because they'd go off and get themselves into situations that would require the British military and the British taxpayer to bail them out. That's exactly what happened in Rhodesia. And, uh, the Bulawayo field force was, uh, disbanded and Salu gathered up Gladys and, uh, and he'd been you know, very, very anxious about her safety and, um, gathered her up and, and left the country before the war was over, uh, which made his, his book, Sunshine and Storm in Rhodesia, an interesting document because, uh, he wrote it, uh, kind of in the heat of the moment before the, the war was actually finished. And, um, uh, well, it's not quite the classic that A Hunter's Wanderings in Africa is. It's uh, my second favorite of salu's books, and if you're interested in more of his experiences and the experiences of others that he heard secondhand during the Second Matabili War in 1896, highly recommend that you get a copy of it. It's a it's a very very interesting read on. Uh, on late period frontier warfare, so, so the Salus left the country, and and this time Salu really was done with Rhodesia for good. Um, went back to to England, used that as a, a kind of a home base. He and Gladys had uh, had three sons, one of which was born prematurely and died early, but uh, two of them who were uh, robust children and uh, he kind of focused on on his home life with Gladys and the children although they were as tradition would dictate sent off to to boarding school and he did a lot of, of writing and traveling to hunt and lecturing and that was pretty much in addition to uh, to investments that was his, his source of, of income. And his travels took him from North America to Asia Minor, what we think of as Turkey, from East Africa to Hungary, and from Sardinia to Iceland. And during this period, he became very close friends with President Theodore Roosevelt. And when T.R. left the White House, um, he asked Salu to advise him on a safari in in East Africa and uh, Salu actually uh, advised him on the hunt and traveled with him a little bit from from the port of Mombasa into the East African interior but he didn't actually hunt with Roosevelt. he said that uh, his party was very large and I did not want to be with a crowd, which was Pretty typical salute. Um But this was, was the root of, of a real friendship with, with Roosevelt, with whom he was beginning to develop and share a real concern for conservation of wilderness lands and big game. They both were kind of mourning the loss of the, the kind of life that they had led when they were younger, and the hunting that they had had, and wanted to see it preserved for later generations. And, uh, and so both became quite ardent conservationists. Um, you know, that paradoxical notion that, that in order to keep certain lands wild, you have to manage them. And, uh, and so they were both pioneers in that conservation Movement that started to gather steam late in the 19th century and early in the, the 20th century. So, Salu had fought his war in Rhodesia in 1896. You would have thought that he would have eagerly signed up for duty in the Anglo Boer War, which broke out just three years later in 1899 between the Boer Republics of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State and the British Empire. Like his contemporary and acquaintance, the American scout, Frederick Russell Burnham, Salou would have, have made a valuable scout and intelligence officer for the British and, and helped them cope with these tough, mobile marksmen that made up the the Boer commandos, but that was not the case. Fred, Frederick Courtney Salu, that is, uh, was a, an opponent of the war. He blamed Rhodes for stirring the conflict between the English and the Boers and, uh, not so much Jameson for, for Jameson's raid, but, uh, but he blamed Rhodes for Jameson's raid. And, uh, Thought that that a different path, a more conciliatory path, could have been taken. Um, Salu had his uh, had his criticisms of the Boers, but uh, he knew many of them personally. had hunted with with many Boer hunters and and liked them personally. and uh, He thought that it was a tragedy that the the two white races of South Africa would engage in in what amounted to, to his eyes as a kind of, of civil war. And uh, his criticism of Rhodes then was a, an absolute break with the man that he had worked for for many years and for whom he had cut the pioneer road into Mishona land. As the, the war clouds gathered over South Africa, he joined the South Africa Conciliation Committee Trying to avert the war through negotiation um, that failed, of course. And uh, interestingly, as Etherington points out, it put uh, Salu into some uh, strange company for a big game hunter who had just lately been involved in in crushing the the Matabili. He uh, he kind of got swept up with uh, an anti. War movement and an anti-imperialist movement that his values weren't entirely congruent with. Um, It was an awkward position to be in. And uh, as soon as it became clear to him that the British were all in on defeating the Boers and establishing their supremacy in South Africa, he pretty much just stopped talking about the war in public. But he never rallied to the colors either. That would not be the case a decade down the line in 1914 when the July crisis after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand who was another ardent hunter, by the way sent Europe hurtling down the slope into full-scale war. This time Frederick Courtney Salu had absolutely no hesitation and was determined to get into the fray even though by this time he was in his 60s and by any measure or standard was too old for active military service. Salu didn't have any illusions that this war would be short or easy or glorious and uh In a letter to a friend, he he took a pretty grim view and expressed some anxiety for his teenage son. I believe this war will be a terrific business and that we shall have to send something like a million of men out of the country before it is over, so that sooner or later I think I shall get into the fighting line. Freddy will not be old enough to volunteer until April 21st next, when he will be 17, and I fully expect that he will be wanted. If I should be eliminated, it would not matter a bit, as I have had my day. But it would be a pity if so promising a boy got scuppered at the onset of his life. And uh, unfortunately, that would prove to be the case. Um, although Salou was spared seeing it, um, Freddie was killed in action with the Royal Flying Corps a year to the day after his father's death in Africa. Well, that's getting ahead of our, our story a little bit. Slew initially tried to get into France to act as a guide in the, in the trenches, but that didn't work out. Uh, he asked an insurance actuary to give him a very vigorous medical exam to prove his fitness, and uh, which he presented to every authority he could get in front of. Finally, he found a billet with a very odd... Outfit called uh, the 25th Royal Fusiliers, the Legion of Frontiersmen, uh, which is a kind of a storied outfit of, uh, of interesting misfits, some of them uh, too old for service, none of them close to as old as, as Salou. But they were a colorful bunch, um, sort of conceived along the lines of the, the Rough Riders. And uh, they shipped out to Africa which had opened up as a theater of war. Sulu would lead some troops in an attack on a town and wireless station at Bukoba on the western side of Lake Victoria, Nyanza. And characteristically, he recounted the expedition in published writings, including an account of a firefight with some German troops. Uh, The German troops, by the way, were usually led by Um, white officers, but were comprised almost entirely of uh, highly capable black troops called Askaris. I was expecting to see the men of C. Company on my right when suddenly I saw two men dressed in khaki and wearing helmets amongst the rocks less than 200 yards away from me on my right. There were also two or three natives in khaki with them. I said to Corporal Jenner, who was close to me, Those must be two of our men with some of the native carriers, and we stepped out into the open. We were immediately fired on, but still I could not bring myself to fire back at them, and thinking that they were our own men, and that seeing us suddenly, where they did not expect any of our men to be, they had mistaken us for Germans. I took off my helmet, and I waved it to them. One of them at once removed his helmet and waved it back to me. I was just putting on my helmet again when the Germans, for they were Germans, fired at me again, and then dived in amongst the rocks. Their bullets appeared to whistle very close past me, although they may have not been as near as they seemed. At one point, a lot of the enemy, whom my platoon had gradually forced out of the rocks, had to cross the open valley below, but they were then a long way off, and though we expended a lot of ammunition on them, I only saw one drop. We also killed one black soldier at close quarters in the rocks, and I have his rifle, which I shall keep as a souvenir." I think that implies that Salu killed that soldier. Although, interestingly, um, and I think um, to his credit, Salu does not ever either, I mean, he doesn't brag about um, or even really mention actual uh, killings in warfare at all, and certainly does not treat the killing of men as filling the bag as he did in his hunting exploits. Salu, even at his advanced age, was incredibly fit, and far more fit for the kind of duty that, uh, that he was undertaking than most of the men with whom he served. He was noted for his physical prowess and marched down men less than half his age. The rigors of campaigning did take their toll, though, Um, and in in 1916, uh, he had to return to England for surgical treatment of a particularly undignified ailment, a case of the hemorrhoids. No one would have thought the less of him if he'd just stayed in England and hung up his rifle. He'd certainly done his bit, but uh, his restlessness wouldn't allow for that. Um, he, he couldn't stay out of it. And at the end of 1916, he was back with his unit, chasing the elusive German general, Paul von Letta Vorbeck, through the African bush. His friend and biographer, John Millay, wrote, During this and previous marches, Salu never rode a yard of the way, but marched like his men living on their rough fare and enduring the constant rain and soaking bivouacs with stoical indifference. He also chased butterflies and uh, made nature notes. He was always that Victorian naturalist. Salu met his end very suddenly in a skirmish and a firefight at, uh, at Beho Beho. And, uh, the way it went down is that he was observing enemy positions in a line of trees, uh, at a distance through binoculars, took a rifle round to the side, which crumpled him and spun him a little bit. Then a shot that, uh, that apparently hit him in the mouth and, and went straight into the brainstem and killed him instantly. And, uh, his old African gun bearer, Ramazan, who was at his side through all of this campaigning, reportedly went berserk seeing the hunter fall and charged into the trees where the snipers were holed up and killed several German officers and African riflemen to settle the score. Salu was buried right there in the bush and the campaign ground on and actually, ultimately, von Letta, von Letta Vorbeck would not surrender until um, after the word of the armistice got to him. So his was the last campaign of, of World War I. I'm going to circle back to the beginning and give Theodore Roosevelt the last word and repeat the eulogy that he wrote for his old friend, I think perhaps after listening to Salu's story, we'll all appreciate a little more how accurate Roosevelt's words were. He led a singularly adventurous and fascinating life, with just the right alternations between the wilderness and civilization. He helped spread the borders of his people's land, he added much to the sum of human knowledge and interest. He closed his life exactly as such a life ought to be closed by dying in battle for his country while rendering her valiant and effective service. Who could wish a better life or a better death or desire to leave a more honorable heritage to his family and his nation? Well, I do love that. And I have to say that I like and admire Frederick Courtney Salu a great deal. Salu, like Daniel Boone, with whom I, I find a whole lot of, of parallels, was a hunter by his calling. That was his heart's passion all of his life, and a frontier partisan warrior by circumstance. Uh, he was not a particularly warlike individual, and, uh, and yet life on the frontier in southern Africa no less than life on the Kentucky frontier, a century earlier, sometimes required stepping into harness and doing your bit. And Salud did that successfully. But uh, I really admire and respect the fact that that uh, he wasn't a hater, no matter how much his uh, his rage boiled up at the uh, the acts of the the Matabili insurgents. insurgents. Um, It eventually cooled, and he never succumbed to hate, and he was certainly no white supremacist. Salou knew that that his whole world, his world as a hunter, was wrapped up with a whole culture of native and mixed-race and boar hunters. Um, He was often portrayed as sort of the the lone Englishman off in the wilderness, um, and the mightiest of hunters, but uh, he didn't portray himself that way, and he he knew it to be otherwise. His legacy is is an interesting one. Um, interestingly, you know, it's kind of curious that that the most elite of the Rhodesian. Special Operations Forces that that fought in the Rhodesian Bush War in the 1960s and 70s was named the Salu Scouts. Um, He was not an elite caliber warrior himself, but he was so highly thought of that that the elite counterterrorism unit, the Salu Scouts, decided to name themselves in his honor. Um, He is also, he also has his name on the Salu game reserve in Tanzania in the area in which he died, um, which is a very fitting legacy indeed. In my view, Salu's great legacy now in 2021 remains his writings, they're a real treasure trove and a glimpse of a world that, uh, that flared briefly and brilliantly in the late 19th century and is gone now. Um, not only that, they're just a pleasure to read. I mentioned uh, in the previous podcast that uh, I've often had a hunter's wanderings in Africa on my nightstand um, for reading before going to sleep. It's a great way to induce some fine dreams of, of old Africa. Uh, the, the writing really holds up and, uh, not all of it is, is to the same standard, but, um, I highly recommend that you get yourselves a copy of A Hunter's Wanderings in Africa and, uh, Sunshine and Storm in Rhodesia in particular. And, uh, you know, if you like those, then then his other writings are available too, and uh, some of them um, inexpensively in in ebook form. Well worth the time. The company is very pleasurable. So we're going to move on to uh, another uh, another Frederick. Well, actually, there will be a brief interlude with a a, a short. Uh, Portrait of a, an eccentric boar hunter um, who I uh, I just I just can't uh, pass up the opportunity to describe his uh, his wildlife and his very strange abode. But uh, the next uh, the next main podcast will be on Frederick Russell Burnham um, by request, and uh, Burnham is one of the most fascinating characters in uh, frontier history, uh, not least because his career straddled two frontiers, the, so- the frontier of the Southwest, the last days of, uh, of the Apache frontier in Arizona and also, uh, Rhodesia in South Africa during the same period when Salu was active. And, uh, Burnham's a remarkable figure, and uh, also a writer like Salou, whose works uh, endure to this day. So, several of you have uh, have asked for a podcast on Burnham, and that will be forthcoming. Want to thank all of you for listening, and uh, and in particular our patrons uh, from our Patreon page. That's. Chaz Clifton, Bob Days, Alan Godziff, Jerry Nunnelly, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Shortfager. I can't do this uh, without your support, so appreciate it very much. Those of you who are interested in becoming a patron on our Patreon page, the link is on the show notes with this episode. I'll also link to... Um, the Norman Etherington biography of Salu, and uh, a couple of uh, Salu's own books. So uh, thank you for joining me on this trek along with uh, the great African hunter, and we'll see you down the trail.